Welcome to Inspiration from American History with Rebecca Price Janney. Today's story is called The Critical Period. On the afternoon of April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered his starving army to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. It was difficult to find families on either side of the conflict that had not been touched in some way by the Civil War's four years of wreckage. With this surrender, the fatigued nation breathed a collective sigh of relief. But less than a week later, a new wave of grief flooded the country when President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. As they draped their homes and businesses in black, they wondered, how could this have happened on top of everything else we've lost? Their belief that the president had gone to a just reward in heaven soothed the rawness of their emotions. At the funeral in the White House, Dr. Phineas D. Gurley of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church didn't speculate on Lincoln's eternal condition, but focused on his sterling character. He also assured the nation that God was still sovereign and could be trusted in spite of this latest tragedy. While Northerners were bowed down by President Lincoln's death, Southerners reeled in the days after their surrender and the assassination. The president's killer was from Maryland, and their homes, farms, businesses, and public places were shells of their former proud selves. Cities and rural areas alike had experienced such devastation that there wasn't enough money for the most basic civil services. Virtually no banks operated, and the transportation system and infrastructure were reduced to rubble. The railroads were not completely restored for at least two decades. There was widespread starvation. Georgia poet Sidney Lanier remarked, pretty much the whole of life has been merely not dying. In the aftermath of the tremendous destruction and loss of life, there was a surge of interest in spiritualism, the practice of trying to conjure dead spirits, but most Americans chose to let traditional Christian faith guide them through the challenges. Between 1860 and 1870, church membership and attendance flourished. The Methodists and Baptists saw increases of 22%. The Presbyterians improved their numbers by 24%, and the Episcopalians advanced by 46%. Here was a church-going America on an unprecedented scale, said Martin Marty. Some ministers became national celebrities, princes of the pulpit, whose opinions were widely quoted in the papers. Men like Henry Ward Beecher, Phillips Brooks, Russell Conwell, Dwight L. Moody, and Charles Hodge, along with the female evangelist Phoebe Palmer. Beecher, Brooks, and Conwell in particular, who led large urban churches, gave public shape 
to a Protestant culture. Beecher and Brooks took it upon themselves to mediate Christianity to the modern world that was changing it in several ways. The Civil War had divided many denominations. The rise of the urban industrial state and shifting immigration patterns were challenging establishment Protestantism. In addition, the arrival of historical criticism of the Bible that had first begun in European academies was making an appearance among some American colleges and universities. This method of interpretation regarded the Bible as any other historical document, and it emerged around the same time as Darwin's theory of evolution. Arthur Meyer Schlesinger has called this era the critical period in American religion. Beecher, Brooks, and Conwell, along with others of their more theologically liberal manner, were not the only public Christian figures during this period. Others were shaping the way in which Americans framed their beliefs about sin and salvation, heaven and hell. Among them was the most prominent evangelical of the post-war era, Dwight L. Moody. Born in Massachusetts, Moody had a hard childhood that included his alcoholic father's death when Moody was four. At 18, he became a Christian while working in his uncle's shoe store. Then he moved to Chicago a year later, where he began a long and illustrious ministry. He eventually created the largest Sunday school of his time, with an average attendance of 650. After the war, he teamed up with singer-songwriter Ira Sankey to prevent to present evangelistic crusades, first in England, then to enormous crowds throughout America. Together, they created a prototype that other evangelists followed for generations, including Billy Graham. Moody's overriding concern was saving souls. He said, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. His background and delivery weren't polished like Beecher's or Brooks's, but he was just as influential in his day, and newspapers frequently published his sermons, many of which were put into book form. In one sermon, Moody discussed why he didn't often mention hell in his speeches. He said, a man came to me the other day and said, I like your preaching. You don't preach hell, and I suppose you don't believe in one. Now, I don't want anyone to rise up in the judgment and say that I was not a faithful preacher of the word of God. It is my duty to preach God's word just as he gives it to me. I have no right to pick a text here and there and say, I don't believe that. If I throw out one text, I must throw out all. For in the same Bible, I read of rewards and punishments, heaven and hell. No one ever drew such a picture of hell as the Son of God. No one could do it, for he alone knew what the future would be. He didn't keep back this doctrine of retribution, but preached it out plainly, preached it to with pure love, 
just as a mother would warn her son of the end of his course of sin. There were many other biblically orthodox leaders of that era who continued to believe in established Christian teachings about the afterlife, especially heaven for the saved and hell for the damned. Among them was evangelist and author Phoebe Palmer. In a poem, she addressed the problem of alcohol, which was pictured as an adder about to steal a man's soul and consign it to hell. Frances Willard, who led the Women's Christian Temperance Union, also believed in the link between alcoholism and damnation. The most admired and photographed female of her time, Willard had two great passions, her love for Jesus Christ and ridding the country of alcohol. She was known to instill the fear of God's wrath whenever she challenged saloon operators. During one of her women's crusade campaigns, she and a few dozen followers stood outside a Chicago bar in sub-freezing temperatures, singing, praying, and chanting the 146th Psalm. They had already managed to close 15 saloons in one week's time, charging that people who ran such establishments not only were responsible for the ruination of many a man and his family, but were going to be eternally damned if they failed to repent. When the owner came out and began cursing the women, Willard just prayed louder. The prevailing beliefs of that time about heaven and hell continued to be in a traditional and orthodox vein, while some in higher education were beginning to question those concepts. It is worthwhile to note colleges were moving away from exclusively training clergy in favor of raising up men to be industrial and scientific leaders. College also became a place for young men to build up their social resumes. A spirit of skepticism that emerged from Europe had not yet filtered very far down to the average Protestant pulpit or pew. From his distinguished position at Princeton Seminary, theologian Charles Hodge still taught that God and Christ, holiness and sin, heaven and hell, really are what the Bible declares them to be. In that era, Christians were also painting an increasingly emotional picture of heaven. Sidney Alstrom refers to it as the most extravagantly sentimental period in American history and holds that it was teams of revivalists like those led by Moody who perpetuated that condition through song and sermon. In popular hymns of that day, heaven was often portrayed as a great resting place for the souls of the redeemed in Jesus. Among them was We'll Never Say Goodbye, written in 1894 by the prolific Fanny Crosby and composed by Ira Sankey. O blessed home where those who meet shall never say goodbye, where kindred souls each other greet and never say goodbye. We'll never say goodbye, we'll never say goodbye. In that fair land beyond the sky, we'll never say goodbye. Earlier, 
Crosby had written Safe in the Arms of Jesus, another sentimental hymn about death and heaven that enjoyed great popularity after being performed at President Grant's funeral in 1885. Safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast, there by his love o'ershadowed, sweetly my soul shall rest. Hark, tis the voice of angels born in a song to me over the fields of glory, over the jasper sea. Protestant preachers in the late 19th century often used the image of the church as a lifeboat in an ocean of floundering lost souls, with the members in the lifeboat holding out their hands and ropes to save the lost. Otherwise, they would sink forever without their help. Those who navigated the waters with Jesus as their captain would make their final voyage across Jordan to the promised land of heaven. Thank you for joining me for Inspiration from American History. I'm Rebecca Price Janney.